So I'm not saying I know exactly why we are where we are, why Trump happened, why these things exist. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying I, I can get an idea of how the institutions formed that promoted these people. the internet you are listening to changed my mind with luke t harrington this is my show where i talk to people who have changed their minds about big important things i'm luke t harrington award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, and definitely not for koalas in a trench coat just setting the record straight on that um speaking of conspiracies between koalas and other types uh, I had a really interesting conversation uh, with a, an author named Robert Skvarla about how he came around to quote-unquote believe in conspiracy theories, if you will, or at the very least to make use of the language of conspiracy uh, when discussing political realities, if that makes sense. Um, if it doesn't make sense, you will understand in a second because I'm about to flip you over to that conversation. Um, Robert was an interesting guy. Uh, really enjoyed talking to him. Really learned a lot from the conversation. I don't know if he won me over to his approach or understanding of things, but I will say it made me think a lot. So I'll go ahead and flip you over to that conversation and I will see you on the other side. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, how you doing, Luke? I'm doing great. I'm doing great, and I'm ready to talk about conspiracy theories. Robert, for listeners who don't know, is a writer and editor uh, at the film website Diabolique and dabbles in research on conspiracies. So um, I'm actually really interested to dive into this because it's it's one of those things that I, I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about it. Uh, what you told me, I believe was that you have come around to, how would you put it? You changed your mind on conspiracies. Yeah, so I like to make a distinction between conspiracies and conspiracy theories, because I think the latter sure. group, conspiracy theories, there's this kind of a priori understanding of it when you talk about it. There's this idea that it's only a theory and there's no grounding in reality. But over the last, I mean, I would say over the course of my lifetime, but especially over the last three or four years, I've actually gone from... I wouldn't say someone who is all the way against the idea of conspiracies existing in reality, but definitely someone who sought to debunk them to someone who now actively believes that probably the best way of explaining politics is to look at it, to use the language of conspiracy. Hmm. Interesting. I, I do appreciate the distinction between conspiracy and conspiracy theory, because it seems like there are an awful lot of people on the internet who don't know the difference. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things with conspiracy theories now is there's this um, immediate knee-jerk reaction to conflate actual real-world conspiracies with conspiracy theories and say any discussion uh, where we view the world through the lens of conspiracy is bad because it automatically leads down a dangerous road. But I would actually argue this is kind of ahistorical, especially with regard to the United States from the 60s mm. onward. And we can definitely get into that as the discussion goes along. 
it seems to me like it should be non-controversial the question of whether conspiracies happen like of right. course people conspire they Correct. do <laughs> the distinction that <laughs> between a conspiracy like conspiracies are real a conspiracy theory though is someone who says hmm i bet these people are conspiring and i mean the problem with most conspiracy theories is that they they theorize a conspiracy so vast and so right you know, powerful that there's no way to prove or disprove the theory in a sense when you look at uh, and we can jump right into politics if you want but sure. if you look at it the way um politics operates in the united states there are in a sense vast conspiracies that exist there are mm -hmm. large networks of um, money that control politics in the united states you sure. have people like the cokes um i believe it's just charles now i'm not mm -hmm. sure if they're both still alive you have the mercers you have lots of people who use money and create networks to obfuscate the fact that they're using money so in okay. a sense we have large-scale movements we have large-scale political institutions that hide from mainstream attention organizations like the council for national policy the Heritage Foundation, ALEC, which essentially conspire because their main goal is to make sure most people don't know they exist, but mm -hmm. they will fund all kinds of things, anti-lockdown protests. They'll fund, um, in some sense, they'll pay a lot of the conservative talking heads and pundits that we see on TV. They just pick them out of the blue and put them into positions where they can amplify their voices. So in a sense, mm -hmm. you could say there is a vast network it's just often, I think it's misapplied and people look at it in a way where it can get conflated. And there are definitely obviously bad conspiracy theories. I'm not saying all conspiracy theories are good. <laughs> when you get into a lot of like the stuff with blood drinking pedophiles and <laughs> anti-Jewish conspiracies, uh, those are definitely bad and almost always wrong. But there are large networks that exist in this world that influence the way this country moves, the way politics operates, um, the people who get put into positions of power. All right. Well, why don't we start at the beginning, though? You said this is this is your your big mind change. So I guess at some point you doubted the existence of conspiracies or, or how, how would you put it? So I was always into like spooky stuff. Growing up, sure. I was really big into the X-Files. Right I was on. big into like UFOs and stuff when I was a kid. Uh, but then as I got as I got to be a teenager, I sort of let that go. And I drifted from any interest in that. Once I got to be in my late 20s and early 30s, um, I began. So I joined the military at one point um, mm -hmm. where I come from. You either go to college, you go to the military. Uh, sure. I tried the former, didn't work. So I did the latter. And that was actually, I think, what really set me down the road for that, because at that same time, um, two years after I joined, we had the WikiLeaks drops. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that was something that made me take stock of what I was doing, the institution I was a part of, and it made me evaluate, do I want to do this? And mm -hmm. there were other things that happened while I was there where I realized organizations exist to perpetuate themselves. They're not necessarily amoral. They have their own sets of goals, and they're going to do whatever they can to keep the organization moving forward. So in some sense, even on a very basic level, organizations like the military will cover things up. And as I was getting out, that became more and more apparent because I was in the Air Force and they went through a number of series of sexual assault scandals, where mm -hmm. it was basic training. Instructors were caught doing horrible things. Uh, the Air Force's uh, actual SAPER, uh, Sexual Assault Prevention Response Coordinator, was actually 
accused of assault. So this made me evaluate if this institution will work in such a way as to protect some of the people who do these things, why won't this, why doesn't this operate on a larger scale? So it's something that was sort of in the back of my mind. And beginning in 2015, 2016, I really started researching the subject of conspiracy theories. Mm. I started writing about it. Um, in 2017, I wrote something for Atlas Obscura on the satanic panic, where it mm. comes from a position where I'm trying to debunk the Procter and Gamble rumor where sure. Procter and Gamble was associated with Satanism in the 80s. But I was coming from a position where I didn't necessarily think most of these ideas were legitimate. And conspiracies, as I was getting into the academic research, would often argue um, people look for patterns. They want to make sense of the chaos. So in a sense, I was very believing of that, especially within the last year, my mind has changed. After I got out of the military, I moved to Philadelphia, and I began attending protests for racial justice, social justice going back to Ferguson, Freddie Gray. And this year, well, last year, there were the George Floyd protests. And in Philadelphia, especially, the police department, there is no other way to explain it, but they actively conspired against the citizenry of Philadelphia. I was there from the first day of protests. Um, to this day, the city of Philadelphia and the Philadelphia Police Department are still lying about the fact that they used tear gas. They used it that day, but they deny it. They stated um, it was another day or two till that happened. I was there watching as the police department kettled a group of protesters on an embankment and pelted them with um, tear gas canisters and then lied, stating that the group became aggressive. It took two weeks for that to come uh, to become public because it took the New York Times to do an expose. Mm. Um, but that same day, the actual Philadelphia Police Department um, agitated a mob against citizens in another part of town in a neighborhood called Fishtown. Um, it came out the following month that the 26, uh, 26th police, police department essentially called up locals and told them Antifa was going to come through and loot and mob the town. So uh, the group formed up and attacked anyone they could find. But mm. this is stuff the city and the police department are still lying about. The Philadelphia um, police department, the city, and the organization, the law firm that they brought out to investigate it, ultimately argued it was a series of training mistakes, lack of training, not enough staffing. Whereas if you were actually there watching it happen, you could see um, the evolution where it was an organization conspiring against a group of people. So that ultimately is what really, I think, I guess you could say opened my eyes, if you want to use mm -hmm. conspiracy mm -hmm. language. And since then, I've just sort of been writing about it ever since. And I'm researching various subjects around state violence. But one of the best ways I think to frame conspiracy is to look at it through the lens of state violence. Because often people who don't believe in conspiracy theories or denigrate them are often people who have never been subject to state violence. So when you're in a position where that happens, it can change your perspective, change your mind if you want. I guess what, what I'm hearing from you strikes me as something that should be fairly non-controversial like you know do people in power seek to perpetuate their power do Correct. people you know do do is violence used to to perpetuate power of course it is you know do people do do people lie about their bad behavior well obviously they do like people everyone has every motivation to lie about their bad behavior you know i mean i mean when you when you jump from when you jump from the satanic panic to that, which 
I mean, maybe I should say for, for listeners who aren't uh, familiar with the Satanic Panic, this was um, arguably a forerunner to what we have uh, with um, QAnon now. Yep. Essentially, there was this widespread belief in the late 80s, early 90s that there were satanic cults all over the world that were kidnapping and raping and murdering children. And it was, I mean, it was just this bizarre thing where like seemingly everybody believed this was a thing and they never managed to find any evidence for any of that. So when you jump from that and say, you know, that's a conspiracy theory to, um, hey, you know, the cops tear gas people and then lied about it. Well, I mean, there's a pretty big leap there, don't you think? There is and there isn't because... um... What can be seen as a conspiracy theory is often the early stage of what other people would call investigative reporting. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, January 6th, with the insurrection, the riot, protest, whatever you want to call it, anyone casting doubt on that right now is automatically seen as a conspiracy theorist because of the way it unfolded. But there are arguments that can be made that it's possible certain institutions and government, if not, they, if not organized it, they at least guided some of the people to where they were. Um, mm. We know at least a number of people within the Proud Boys who were one of the key organizers for that. Um, at least four members have been identified as um, FBI informants. There is a lot coming out now with the plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan, where mm. as more and more information comes out, it looks like institutions in government if not organized, that directed people in such a way that they may not have acted on their own. So you can talk about state violence, but it only happens in certain ways. If you go too far out there, people will call you conspiracy theorists. Um, Mm -hmm. I doubt very much that um, January 6th would have happened without some of the groups that may have been guided by the government, the Proud Boys in specific. So that's an area where I think you can definitely say people would disagree with you about the issue that the government conspires. But even with the satanic panic, as I've researched that further and further, you can make an argument for a conspiracy, but not the obvious one. So I followed up that Atlas Obscura article with another one earlier this year about an organization named Jeremiah Films. They were an evangelical production company in the 80s and 90s who were very big into promoting the satanic panic. But the founder of the organization, Patrick Matriciana, was super well-connected in the evangelical right, going back to the late 60s in organizations like the Campus Crusade for Christ. He had connections to Hal Lindsey, uh, Tim LaHaye, and a lot of large figures in the Christian right. The deeper you get into it, the more you can make an argument that there was a conspiracy, but it was a small group of Christians who were trying to exert political power. Uh, Many of these people would go on to form institutions like the Council for National Policy, which I mentioned earlier. So you can look at the satanic panic as a conspiracy where these people were testing out um, rhetoric um, and arguments that they would later use. Jeremiah Films was later uh, notorious because they were the organization that helped to mainstream the Clinton body count conspiracy theory. So there was money moving behind this that you can make a case for a conspiracy if not the one people often talk about. Okay, let me ask you this. How, what, what am I trying to say here? Um, I, I, like, I see the argument that, you know, there are people seeking to gain power um, and using their money and their ability to disseminate information to do so. 
to me though, that, that just like, seems like that's just what people do, right? <laughs> There's always people going after power. There's always people. Right. Um, like how is the, how is framing it in terms of a conspiracy helpful? Like what does that illuminate? What, what do we get? What do we learn from that? So I think conspiracy often is a common language that people understand. If you are trying to explain the nuances of some of the institutions and organizations I mentioned before, it can be difficult to explain why an organization, like why an arm of the government might seek to entrap or agitate Americans to accomplish vague aims. But historically, if you look at organizations like the FBI, they've done it with left-wing groups since the 60s. They've done it with Muslim Americans in the 2000s and 2010s. But when you frame it as just this opaque, vague thing that, oh, occasionally they go too far, I think it misses the point of the institution itself. The Mm. goal of organizations like that are to continually grow their budget, to continually make sure that the institution will continue. So I think Mm -hmm. using the language of conspiracy is often a way to break down barriers in some cases across political lines or to speak in a language people will understand. Mm -hmm. If you just say, well, occasionally bad things happen, the government goes too far, something's lost, people lose interest. If you frame it with the language of conspiracy, it's something that not only catches people's attention, but I think in some cases helps them understand. And especially from a historical perspective, when these institutions have been doing this for decades upon decades. Yeah. I also Hmm. think it offers something approaching a class analysis. One of the ways I got into this um, Mm -hmm. is because I slowly started moving further and further left. And Mm -hmm. organizing it like this, in my own mind, helped me understand how a boardroom, in a sense, is a conspiracy. Um, A war room where they're going to send young men off to die, young men and women, that's a conspiracy. I mean, we know that most American uh, wars for the last 20 years have, if not been founded on outright lies, then misrepresentations and untruths. The war in Iraq, for example. All right. Here, here's my, here's another objection, or I, I don't, I don't know if sure. it's quite an objection. Here's another. No, I like when people object. Quib- this is quibble I, have. I, I, I have my doubts, I guess, that the average person is really <laughs> all that focused on you know, perpetuating, like, I, I know there are people out there obsessed with power who spend their lives chasing after power. Um, in my experience, the average person doesn't care all that much. You know, they want to show up, they want to get their job done so they can go home and watch TV. You know, I guess that's not a question, is it? I don't know how to phrase no, that. It, question. It, I, I get what you're getting like, at. So like, one of the reasons, I, one of the reasons uh, I, I mentioned going back to the sixties is I think that for a, number of, uh, for a number of reasons, Americans have definitely lost interest in things like this. If you look at what was happening in the 60s and 70s, news was often framed as conspiracy because conspiracy was everywhere. We had um, the assassination of John F. Kennedy. We had the assassin- assassination of Robert Kennedy. We had the assassination of Martin Luther King. We had Watergate. We had the church committee hearings. We had the House Select uh, Committee on Assassinations. You know, for this 20-year span, everything was a conspiracy. And we actually saw lots of social change because of it. Um, Out of the church committee hearings, the CIA had powers curbed for a few years until they started peeling that back. Uh, We saw all kinds of things happening with the civil rights movement once it was discovered that, for example, um, various institutions and organizations were much more connected to racism than we first thought. I'm not saying it made things perfect, but I'm saying we started making changes. Mm -hmm. And then 
I would argue probably somewhere around the 80s, uh, early 80s, you start seeing that change for a variety of reasons. Um, the Democratic Party starts shifting because um, the kind of populism that they were involved in before isn't marketable. It's not mm -hmm. something that they can win elections with. Media consolidation starts eroding the number of institutions we have in this country. So we start losing newspapers, radio stations, um, and that accelerates in the 90s because of um, legislation like the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which mm -hmm. removes ownership restrictions on media. So mm -hmm. at a certain point, I think Americans lost interest because you, again, could make an argument that people in power found ways to make them lose interest. But for mm. a good 20-year period, people were pissed off, and it was reflected in what was happening nationally. And I think that's something that you can't replicate, but it's something you can look to for lessons. So I get what you're saying with that, um, but I think people, when presented with information, will typically respond in ways that they understand what serves their self-interests. Um, Conversely, if you look at what's happening right now nationally, QAnon, a lot of the protests that were happening, um, protests happening around critical race theory at uh, the local level with school boards, lots of people are turning out. Lots of people are turning out for um, anti-mask protests at high schools, colleges all over the country. Lots of people are turning out for these things, which are often framed as conspiracies by that side of the aisle. So I do mm -hmm. think people will act on these things. It's just it's often a matter of getting information to them. And I think typically the people perpetuating actual conspiracies are much better at that because they're better at fear appeals, making their audience scared to act. They're better, I don't want to say they're better with money, they have the money to do these things, to push these things. Mm -hmm. So I do think people will act on this type of information when presented with. Mm -hmm. Hello, thank you so much for listening to Changed My Mind. I will get right back to that conversation you were just listening to. Uh, but before we do that, I wanna talk real quick about the Patreon. We are a listener supported show. The donations are what keep the lights on. They help me pay my editor and my executive producer. And they are what keep this sort of thoughtful conversation online for listeners to hear. Um, if you go to patreon.com slash change my mind, that's P-A-T, reon.com slash changed my mind. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. Once you start supporting at $3 or more, benefits start kicking in. You'll get early access to episodes. And if you support at $5 or more, you will become a producer for the show, uh, which basically means that I'm going to shout you out at the end of every episode. And also you can come to our strategy meetings on Zoom every month if you want. You, um, don't have to talk if you don't want to. You can just be a fly on the wall and see how the magic happens uh, or see how the sausage is made, as the case may be. Um, so if you like this show and you like what I'm doing, please consider going online to patreon.com slash change my mind and becoming a supporter. Thanks again to all our listeners and supporters. I really appreciate you. And I will flip you right back over to that conversation you were just listening to. Okay, let me t let me talk about this a bit because I, I want to hear your uh, your thoughts on this. You've said sure. a couple of times now um, that once an institution is in place, it's let me let me. <laughs> I'm so bad at quoting people. I always misquote people. Once an <laughs> let me let me give it a shot. That once an institution is in place, its efforts are focused on perpetuating the institution. Is that right? Correct. That a, I mean, which in my experience is the case. Um, 
I guess, you know, at some point the question becomes like, is there a solution to that? Like, because if that's, that strikes me as a problem that's endemic to the very nature of an institution, regardless of, of what you're talking about. So, you know, if you want to, you, you mentioned boardrooms, if you want to talk about the boardroom as a conspiracy to, you know, squeeze as much labor out of the workforce as cheaply as possible, you know, so you, you tr- try to go up against that institution by creating, say, a workers union, you know, but then right. as soon as you've done that, you've got another institution whose focus necessarily becomes perpetuating itself as opposed to, you know, standing up for the rights of workers, right? Um, Correct. So, I, I mean, <laughs> once you've defined every human institution as a conspiracy, like, that that sounds i mean i mean that sounds like a really dark way of looking at the world to me like anytime people get together they're creating these institutions that just by being institutions are corrupt like what what's the solution here or is there one i don't know i mean i think there is a sense of um perpetual revolution you can't allow institutions to calcify um you bring up mm-hmm. labor and one of the things that one of the ways that the labor movement was successful, at least in the early 20th century, was by framing things in terms of conspiracy. And often there Mm. were, if you look at things like the Ludlow Massacre, if you look at coal miner strikes, Harlan County, places like that, it was often um, business leaders actively conspiring against workers by hiring private detective agencies like the Pinkertons or uh, Wackenhut to um, actively antagonize, beat down, brutalize these people, and in many cases, murder them. in the midst of these things. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the ways that labor, uh, labor was successful was essentially by organizing around the idea that these groups were conspiring against them. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, various labor organizations themselves became corrupt. But again, that's why you can't allow institutions to calcify because ultimately it will become about the institution perpetuating itself. A labor union like the AFL-CIO um, at certain points has gone against the wishes of its workers. Labor unions will sometimes do that because at the institutional level, um, there are things that are good for the institution that aren't good for the members. But framing things in, cons- in terms of conspiracy, I think, is useful, especially now as we see the erosion of labor as that continues. Um, you see it nationally everywhere. You see Amazon actively working with local municipalities to prevent um, their workers from unionizing. You see it all over the country. So I don't think there's any other way to frame it but to speak to people in plain language and say conspiracy. Because I think politics at its most basic level is a conspiracy. Now, you could say there are conflicting conspiracies operating against each other, but I don't necessarily think that is a negative thing because I don't think fundamentally like a group of people, workers coming together, I don't think that can truly be framed as a conspiracy. It's a group of people organizing against something like that. Mm. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like this. I, I like when people I, I, challenge me. I don't I get enough push, of that. Yeah, I want to push back on that. I mean, sure. like, I mean, my, my political leanings are pretty leftist, but I also, um, I, I honestly, I'm just skeptical of anyone who really seems to believe in what they're doing politically. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, uh, but I, w- I want to push back on this because y- you say, all right, this is a conspiracy, but this is just people getting together and working together. Like on what on what basis are you saying that? Like, I, I mean, power imbalances. Just... OK, so 
an institution, um, I'm just going to make an arbitrary distinction here. So a lot of the large-scale money networks that operate in this country um, at the highest levels, um, the Koch Foundation and the various organizations it has created over the years, uh, Cato Institute, Heritage Foundation, and other organizations, uh, those people come from money. They have power. They have institutional value. They're people that even on their own, they can still conspire against other people because they will have the means and resources to do so. Me, um, my day job, uh, I won't say what it is specifically because of the subject we're talking about, um, sure. but I work in social services, helping people get on public assistance. I don't have institutional power. I can't conspire against people on a large scale level. If I wanted to do it at my job, I guess you could say I could do that. But me coming together with other people like me, you know, people who work nine to five or people who work uh, shift labor in retail, people who work at the most fundamental basic levels of society, coming together there, I couldn't classify it as conspiracy because there's no power individually. There's only power collectively. But people who form these large-scale networks will often do so on their own. Um, the Koch Foundation came out of two people, the Koch brothers. Mm -hmm. um, other organizations, they work with other people that they coordinated with, Joseph Coors of the Coors Foundation, Coors Beer, uh, another uh, person who was extremely powerful because of the money that they had. People who operate at the highest levels of society um, are able to do things on an individual level because they can create institutions just out of their resources. It's not something I could do, or you could do probably. I, I, yeah. I don't know your life situation, but... <laughs> I'm assuming hey, you you don't know how much we podcasters make, man. I'm hey, I, I've looked at some of the Patreons <laughs> and I wish I was making that. <laughs> the thing is, the thing is the ones you the ones you know about tend to be the really successful ones. Right. right? For for every every Patreon that's making like a hundred thousand a month, there's like a million that are making like a dollar a month, you know. Yeah, like sub hundred. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I, I'm not too worried about podcasters conspiring against people. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm sure some could. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So if I were a libertarian, <laughs> but this is a great start to a conversation. I'm going to put on my libertarian hat for a second and Go say, um, all right, you talk about individuals coming together versus powerful people, you know, right. controlling the pulling the strings, whatever. The Koch brothers are individuals, right? Like, I mean, that, that's the first thing I'd say if I were sitting here as a libertarian, like that they're individuals, they're just, they have access to more resources and they're just using their resources to shape the world in what they think is for the best, presumably, right? Sure, um, we can say that. <laughs> I mean, certainly best for them. Like, okay, like I said, I'm playing a character here. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not endorsing these ideas. I'm going I'm with just, it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, how, how is that fundamentally different than individuals who have less access to resources? Like, yes, they have more money and power than you, but you know, that's it's. I mean, they worked hard; they earned that money, right? <laughs> no, Actually, I they mean, didn't. So, one of the distinctions <laughs> I would make there is they came from um, a legacy of wealth. Fred Koch, the patriarch of the family, is really the one who made the money, and. Some of the ways he did that were less than on the up and up. Um, sure. He worked with, I'm going to phrase this in a way that's diplomatic, but he worked with the Nazis during World War II for a certain <laughs> period of time that allowed him to make money. A lot of the people who 
now, a lot of the families that exist in this country now, if you trace their lineages back, um, they come from dark places. And that's another distinction I would make. Familial wealth in America is often a dark institution. One of the reasons the generation that followed the robber barons, um, the reason they became philanthropists was so that people didn't drag them out in the streets because of what their families had done previously. And I mm -hmm. think that's a distinction you can look at in this country when you trace wealth forward. So when someone like a Koch brother walks into a bank and says, give me $100,000, um, they're going to be able to get access to that money immediately because of the institutional placement that they've had historically, because they know that money will be there and because um, of their name alone. I walk mm -hmm. into a bank and even if I have $100,000, no one knows who I am and they're not going to let me withdraw it all in one sitting. They don't know who I am. I'm not good for it. So access to means is definitely something that um, I would look at, but looking at how many of these people came to money is also important because, again, you can look at a family like the Cokes, a dynasty as an institution that exists to perpetuate itself. Why do these people continually try to repeal the wealth tax? Why is that the goal of the Libertarian Party? That's one of their primary planks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's because they understand um, familial wealth, generational wealth is something that allows power to continue and allows powerful people and their families to perpetuate themselves. Hmm. I guess then my question becomes, you know, like, and maybe this isn't a fair question. I don't know. What is the... There are no fair questions. I, I respect that outlook. I, I respect that. Um, you know, I, I, okay. So may, maybe there's an answer to this. Maybe there's not. But what's, <laughs> what would you say your ultimate goal is here in educating people about conspiracies? Like, are, are we... I mean, because maybe I'm a little too cynical for my own good, but you know, all I see is this this endless cycle of like, you know, the, the supposing the downtrodden successfully stand up to the powerful. Well, then they're powerful. Now they're the institution, and they have the money and the power, and right. just have the exact same problem we had before, except in reverse. What's the ultimate goal here? I mean, maybe I drive myself crazy doing this. I don't know. Maybe I end up on the bad <laughs> side of conspiracy theories. Um, yeah. But I, so I, I think there's two goals I would like to accomplish, one intergroup and one intragroup. So within conspiracy research, there can often be orthodoxy, even though you're in a group of heterodox thinkers. Right, so right. a lot of the positions that people come to hold are truisms. So I mentioned the satanic panic earlier. I'm mm -hmm. actually amongst a lot of the people I interact with probably one of the few people who doesn't actually believe the satanic panic was real on some level. Hmm. Um, I, I believe there probably is some evidence that maybe um, there was some actual child abuse that was covered up um, by certain organizations like sure. the false memory syndrome foundation. People connected to that were later found to have been abusers, but I don't think on a mass scale and I don't hmm. think it was connected to Satanism. So interacting sure. with people in that group of researchers, maybe I changed someone's mind. Um, mm -hmm. But outside of my group, hopefully I do the same thing, but on a larger scale. I mean, I'm not successful, I would say, in what I do right now. I hope to be um, at yeah. some point in the future. And hopefully I get people to look at the institutions that I keep railing against here in a way where they'll see what I see. But maybe mm -hmm. they won't. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe, you know, it's like in the 60s when it turned over into the 70s and we started seeing a large scale disillusionment. Um, post Watergate specifically, but who knows? Well, I just, um, 
this is quoting some heterodox statistics, I guess, but um, <laughs> I just, I think of stuff like, you know, the defund the police movement, right? Like, yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, yes, clearly there is abuse that occurs among, you know, from cops and, you know, I'm not, I'm not denying, I'm not even denying the, the whole conspiracy thing there. Um, because, you know, clear, as you, as you say, clearly a lot of this abuse is, is um, coming from the top, not from rogue cops. Um, but that, you know, so everybody sees this, it becomes super trendy to, to start yelling to fund the police. But if you actually look at like the polls, like if you actually look at, you know, the polls of black people and uh, how they feel about the police, you know, you see something in the neighborhood of I'm, I'm quoting, uh, I'm not looking at the statistics, so I'm going to get this wrong, but it's, it's a majority, 60 to 80%, I think, who say they either want more police presence or the same amount of police presence in their community. And it's like, clearly, if you live in an area where there is a lot of crime and you are either, you have been the victim of crime or you think you could become the victim of crime, you need something there <laughs> to, right. you know, and it's, it's like, sure, there are a lot of problems with the police force, but there are also an awful lot of people who um, see it as a necessary evil, you know, um, sure. like if, if crime is occurring, there needs to be some sort of force with the force, you know, the, the ability to use violence if necessary to prevent it. Um, and it's, it, to me, it's just like, you know, like, this institution is bad. Maybe we could have a better institution, but like, I, I mean, and I think there's, so I think there's a range of opinions on what defund the police can mean. I think for some sure. people, it's a starting point to a larger conversation. When you make sure. it, when you start in a negotiation, you don't start from the position you want. You start from a position further out because most people yeah. are not going to give you what you want. So I sure. think for some people that's defund the police. Mm. Other people want to completely abolish the police. And I think it's important to make distinctions. I'm, not, I am someone who is highly skeptical of the institution of policing going back right. to its roots, um, yeah. but even recent history. So I brought up Philadelphia as an example. And if you right. look at Philadelphia since the 70s, at least, 60s probably, um, every decade there's a major corruption scandal with our police department, starting, you know, obviously back with Frank Rizzo. But even more recently, um, in the 2010s, we had something known as tainted justice, where the narcotics division was essentially knocking up um, bodegas and holding them up for um, protection money. So mm. that's something that happened within the last 10 years. Within the last five years, there was a group of um, officers who were creating private Facebook groups to send around racist memes mm -hmm. and discuss, obviously, other types of things that they would be doing on their job. Um, so this is something that it's hard to reform that organization when it is resistant to reform. And mm -hmm. what we see is arguments that have arguments that run counter to defund the police are often, well, we just need to channel money into the correct places. The problem is people have been saying that since the 80s and mm -hmm. it hasn't done anything. Um, crime hasn't gotten better. I mean, you there's arguments on a national scale that crime has gotten better, but I'm skeptical of that. Because I mean, if, if, you, you, look look, if you look at the stats, it's been... Right. falling since what the early to mid 90s i mean it's, and it's one of the things i would push back with is i am skeptical of that because it's decreased in major cities but mm -hmm. you've seen a corresponding rise in crime in rural areas drug crime drug addiction um large-scale drug operations 
Mm-hmm. In cities specifically, you've also seen a stratification of crime. You have neighborhoods that are very safe, white gentrified mm-hmm. communities, and you mm-hmm. see um, black communities, communities of color, where crime has not changed. In Philadelphia, gun violence is probably as bad as it's ever been over the past few years. And part of that is how policing works. There are areas like um, Kensington here in Philadelphia where they've essentially cordoned off that area and they just allow an open air drug market to exist because they don't want it to move out to other areas. Now, when you look at things like that, um, I would argue on some level that is a conspiracy. It's Mm. a group of people. um, They're not necessarily doing it in a formalized way, but they're doing it in a way where it disenfranchises specific communities, whether it's communities of color, whether it's um, communities suffering from addiction, it's people that no one ever has to see. So crime has gone down on a national level in certain instances, but where has it actually gone down? And even then I would argue part of that is policing organizations, institutions have gotten better about how they have gotten smarter about how they report crime. One of the things that they found with the FBI in the mid 2010s is that they had underreported rape by over a million cases. Mm. Um, in cities, a uh, number of major cities, you've seen um, whistleblowers come out and say the way crime is reported by police departments often is intentional to misclassify violent crime. There is a whistleblower lawsuit in Washington, D.C. in 2018. Um, I believe Milwaukee or Minneapolis had a similar one. Um, there's it's happened um, in a number of major cities. So again, I would argue that defund the police can be range of positions because mm-hmm. unfortunately, reform doesn't work. We've seen it doesn't work. Police, policing institutions have only become more militarized. They've only become more violent. Hmm. Can we talk real quick about that open air drug market you mentioned? Because I, yeah. I honestly don't know anything about that. You said that's in Ken, Kensington? It's a neighborhood. Yeah. A neighborhood so, in Philadelphia. Yep. Yeah. Tell, tell me more about that. Okay, so um, that's a neighborhood that was historically white working class. Um, Mm -hmm. And beginning in the 80s, um, drugs really started to become a problem. And the city kind of ignored it for years and years, Um, Mm -hmm. probably I would say until the 2000s when it really exploded. And Mm. now it's known nationally as probably one of the most uh, impoverished areas Um, in the country because it has some of the highest rates of addiction. It has um, essentially people just going around selling drugs Mm -hmm. openly. Um, Mm -hmm. The, this year alone, they had to close one of uh, our public transit SEPTA. They had to close one of the train stops because um, the workers just didn't want to go in. There were so many needles, um, so many, um, I don't know what the proper phrase is, homeless people that Mm. were um, living there and using it as like a facility to defecate, urinate, Mm -hmm. what have you. Mm -hmm. So they had to close it for cleaning purposes for a couple of days, which obviously isn't good for people trying to get to their day-to-day jobs. Mm -hmm. And I I feel sympathy for the the people who were unfortunately forced to live there as well because Mm -hmm. of the conditions that they're forced to live in. But this is um, an area within our city where this is allowed to happen. They've tried to do things. Um, And I guess here is where you might be right that on some level, small groups of people can conspire. Um, (laughs) We've tried to get needle exchanges in the city. um, Mm -hmm. And typically it's met with resistance in South Philadelphia, which is pretty far from Kensington, but still an area where drug problems happen. Um, Mm -hmm. Local residents opposed uh, needle exchange, and Mm -hmm. they're still working to see where that's going to go. So Mm -hmm. 
in Philadelphia, this is a problem. And unfortunately, the city has chosen to push it all into one section of the city. Some of it escapes, but mm-hmm. it's primarily in this one area. Hmm. Okay. Tell me, um, and you know, tell me if this isn't a fair question, but what, what do you think should be done about something like that? Well, so that's a difficult question because yeah, I mean, partially you know, I'm not someone who is a public planner. So sure. figuring out how to divert resources and funds is probably above my head, above my pay grade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it speaks to a problem in Philadelphia more generally. So the way the city has designed policies to attract people to the city is in such a way as to impoverish, is in such a way as to push people out, is in such a way as to step on the people that are living there. So one of the things that's been controversial in Philadelphia um, is the city offering what are known as tax abatements on property for people who buy housing in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they offer tenure tax abatements on new construction. What this has had the effect of doing is incentivizing lots of construction for upscale housing, people who can afford to pay for housing, um, but there hasn't really been a corresponding uh, push for low-income housing. There's always discussion Mm -hmm. of it. It's something that's put out there, but it never happens. Mm -hmm. So one of the problems is where, who the city is targeting and how they're doing it. There's this intentional ignorance, there's intentional blindness where they will talk about a problem and say, yes, we must fix this problem, but they will ignore it. They will not look at it. They'll just say, they'll pay lip service to the idea. They'll say, you know, we feel so bad for these people who are suffering, but then they'll do things to encourage that suffering. In Kensington Mm. specifically, um, this is what they do. The only construction that's happening there, if it happens, is new development for high-end homes to gentrify the area. And the idea there is that the area will get better, but the problem won't be solved. It'll be pushed into a new neighborhood. It'll go north or somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's unfortunately, like I said, I can't give you a specific solution because I can recognize this problem, but I can also recognize it's beyond the scope of what I am able to provide for. Yeah. So I yeah. can offer like a vague answer, like I'm saying with sure. public housing being one of the things that every city should be investing in. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I also know that's not going to happen. I mean, the reason I ask is because you say they've just allowed drug use to run rampant in this neighborhood. Like, I I mean, I can definitely imagine a different person sitting here t- talking about that and saying, this is why we need to send the cops out to crack down on drugs. You know? <laughs> well, so um, they do crack down on drugs, but they do it in other neighborhoods and they allow uh-huh. it to flourish in that neighborhood because they want to send people there as opposed to having them in the nicer neighborhoods mm-hmm. that border Kensington, like Fishtown, which I mentioned earlier. Yeah. They don't want people going out there. So you will see a police presence in neighborhoods uh, bordering that area, uh, especially where the property values are higher. Yeah. But, yeah. You won't, but you won't see a police presence there. Or if you do, it's often not the same. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying we should send police officers there to, you know, kick people's heads in. I'm saying the exact opposite. I'm saying the way we fund policing um, doesn't solve problems. It, it exacerbates them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're um, running low on time. So um, (laughs) let me ask you this. Aside from your new beliefs themselves, what would you say you learned from the experience of changing your mind about this? Uh, Deep history, you know, history below what most people will often talk about. So when we talk about the 60s, you talk about social change, you talk about all of these great things that happened with the counterculture. But if you look beneath the surface, you also see the counter reaction forming 
and the things that led us to where we are today. So I'm not saying I know exactly why we are where we are, why Trump happened, why these things exist. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying I, I can get an idea of how the institutions formed that promoted these people. A lot of the bad conspiracy theories, what I would term as bad conspiracy theories, came out of those same money networks. Um, and people like the Shafee family, who were very, who very early on were creating institutions that essentially created the modern conservative um, echo chamber that we see like Fox News, Newsmax and institutions like that. Mm -hmm. So you, you can get a sense of history from looking at things like conspiracies or conspiracy theories from that era. Mm. I don't think I've sold you. I'm, <laughs> I didn't change I, your mind. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I had a thought that popped into my head and I'm just wondering, do I want to open this can of worms? Because I would love Go to hear it. your thoughts. You know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And this will like anyone who is still listening to this podcast will never listen to it again after I bring this up. <laughs> so in the sort of classically leftist uh, circles I spend some time on in the internet, um, you know, dirtbag left or classical Marxist or whatever. Yeah. Um, I keep, I, I run into this conspiracy theory a lot and I would love to hear your thoughts on it because I, I haven't done, I haven't done a lot of research into it. So I have no idea if there's any real evidence of this, but um, okay. um, the idea is that quote unquote identity politics are something of a conspiracy by the U S government that when labor solidarity starts to happen when the people of the lower classes start organizing they deliberately seed these identity ideas racial politics gender politics whatever into the left to sort of break it apart and fracture it and that's why the american left has never gotten anywhere um have you ever encountered that theory do you have any thoughts on it yeah i mean i definitely move in the same circles i know people yeah. who express that idea I'm of both minds on it. I can see how the argument makes sense, but I would also mm. argue, for example, that class is an identity um, that I mean, people sure. <laughs> often don't recognize. They don't yeah. recognize that it's a part of their identity. If you're in a mm. labor union, yes. But if you are a libertarian who is vehemently opposed to labor, that's also part of your identity. So mm -hmm. I have complex thoughts on this. I think um, identity politics has been weaponized to some extent. You can definitely see it in, um, I would argue right now with Afghanistan, the way hmm. a lot of war hawks are saying we must protect women in Afghanistan. It's disingenuous because they didn't care five months ago. So sure. identity can be weaponized and it is. Um, let's be honest here. It often is when it's useful, but I, I'm not going to say that identity politics itself is a conspiracy because hmm. um, where it came from, people like Kimberly Crenshaw, I don't think they were conspiring against anyone. They were in settings where they were examining history through a specific lens, through a specific set of writers, and it came, it brought them to a conclusion. So mm -hmm. I would, I guess I would say yes and no. It depends on the circumstance. <laughs> I, I would have to like look at it. And I gave you an example of where I think it is obviously being weaponized. Sure. Um, but again, you can't look at where we are today without looking at identity. You can't Look at the racism that exists in this world and say it's purely a class, it's purely a manifestation of class because sure. it's not. Uh, some of it exists independent of class. Labor unions were super racist up until, mm -hmm. I mean, many of them probably still are, but <laughs> within like the last 15 to 20 years, it's gotten a lot better. Sure, sure. All right. Well, I have um, three questions I try to close out with, ask all sure. my guests, um, just kind of 
poke at these questions of ontology, epistemology, how do we know truth? How do we know ourselves? Um, First of all, Robert, what is identity? Well, we're already kind of talking about identity, but um, <laughs> what is identity? You know, how, uh, does everybody have an identity? How do you know your identity? What do you think? I mean, I think everybody has an identity as we just went over. It just depends on who you are. For myself, I'm in a union. Um, class labor is um, definitely a part of who I am. So mm-hmm. identity is how you choose to define yourself. Um, identity isn't a... I guess I'm going to use the academic academic term here. It's a social construct, right? It's mm-hmm. how you, it's this idea that we've come up with and it's how you choose to identify yourself, but often it can also be how others choose to identify you. So when mm-hmm. I talk about conspiracy, people are going to create an identity around that based on what they perceive that to be. And often it will be negative. And mm. maybe I can fight that a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting that some people have assumed an identity of a skeptic and then, you know. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I came partially from that field. I still engage with people who identify as skeptics. Um, mm. I enjoy a lot of like skeptic material because I think um, even within the conspiracy community, people can be come calcified in specific beliefs and you have to be a skeptic of your own skepticism or you have to be a skeptic of your own beliefs if you want to keep being true to chasing down the truth. All right. Second, what is human nature? Are we all the same deep down? Are we all different deep down? Are we all blank slates? What do you think? (laughs) Um, That's a really difficult one because I think um, it can often lead to dark places looking at human nature and the way humans interact with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like to think fundamentally we're all the same, but I know deep down that's not true Hmm. Um, because of identity and how we choose to these things, these things we build up around ourselves, these outward structures that we choose to show to the world, that is what we wear, who we are, what we do. So mm-hmm. I think everybody is probably different, but in that you can find collective things that you can unite around, which again, go back to identity, you know, race, labor, class, things like that. Hmm. Okay. And finally, um, what is truth? How do you know truth? How do you know when you found truth? That's a good one. When you're talking to someone who is into conspiracies, what is truth? <laughs> the truth is out there. Right? The truth. Well, so <laughs> I guess, yeah, you could make that argument. I don't know if I actually trust Chris Carter, but um, <laughs> truth is a hard one. It's um, it, in many ways, it's a gut instinct. You You have an idea of what you believe to be true. And you have to keep pursuing it until you either find you were right all along or you were wrong all along. Um, Frequently, since I've changed my mind on this subject, um, it's hard to know. I'm less and less certain. I believe there is ever one knowable truth. Mm. Um, There are versions of the truth that are broadcast publicly that are often not the truth. And we will often find this out years later. Um, mm-hmm. to use the example of uh, conspiracy, looking back at Vietnam, the Gulf of Tonkin, mm-hmm. was something that was initially used as an example to get us into the war. Later, we found out it was almost entirely fabricated. So mm-hmm. the truth is very hard to define um, because it's always changing. So when you're in the field of conspiracy research, in many ways, there is no truth. There is what you know. And Mm. that may conflict with what is accepted as the truth. So it either drives you crazy or you keep pursuing it 
until you make enough people as crazy as you are. Hmm. All right. Well, Robert, it has been fascinating talking with you <laughs> and your absolutely epic mustache. I've been enjoying that as well. Um, thanks. <laughs> thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, before we close out, do you want to tell everyone where they can find you, where they can find your work? Uh, yeah, right now I am on Twitter. It's at my name at Robert Scavarla. I will let you figure out how to spell that. Um, I'm also <laughs> just like it sounds. <laughs> yeah, I'm also uh, an editor at Diablo Lake. So frequently my work appears there. I also have a blog, Mondo Americana, which I'm hoping to do more with shortly. Um, and I'm always pitching stories to sites. Hopefully one of them will land and I get paid. <laughs> One day, one, one day. day. Well, so I started off high. I got paid for the very first thing I ever wrote and it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> I, you know, I know that feeling. I know that feeling. Um, I think the, the most popular article I've ever written, I wrote in 2013 and yeah. Yeah. You know, mine was been... 2017 and it's been clawing back. <laughs> I've been trying to claw back ever since. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been Changed my mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington. You can find me on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington or at my website, LukeTHarrington.com. And you can also email the show now at changedmymindpod at gmail.com. I will see you next time. I really do appreciate the distinction uh, Robert made between conspiracies and conspiracy theories, um, because that really is one of my absolute pet peeves uh, when people don't know the difference between a conspiracy and a conspiracy theory. Um, a conspiracy, to, to be clear, <laughs> in case anyone is still unsure about this, a conspiracy theory is the idea that someone is conspiring. A conspiracy is people actually conspiring. Right. Um, sometimes there will be a theory about a conspiracy that actually exists. Uh, and sometimes there will be a conspiracy about which no one has a theory. Right. Um, so you can have one without the other. Uh, and occasionally they coincide, but not as often as you'd think. The problem with a conspiracy theory most of the time is that it proposes something completely unfalsifiable. Right. Um, the conspiracy theorist says, hey, all these people are getting together to suppress the truth. And you say, well, then why isn't there any evidence that they're conspiring together? And he says, that's how well they've suppressed the truth. Right. And that's the problem with conspiracy theories is that so much of the time the conspiracy theorist treats a lack of evidence as evidence for the conspiracy itself. Um and that's not what Robert is talking about, right? Robert is talking about people conspiring in plain sight, people conspiring out in the open in the light of day. Um, most conspiracy theories are nonsense, but that does not mean that conspiracies do not happen. As we all learned from t-shirts back in the 90s, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you or something like that. Now, is Robert's choice to frame all of this in terms of conspiracy helpful? Eh, I don't know. Um, like I said, I don't think he necessarily won me over to his way of thinking or talking about things, but I do think it's an interesting approach. 
Um, so something to think about. Anyway, that's it for this week. If you like what I'm doing on the show, fostering interesting conversations with thoughtful people, um, please consider becoming a patron of the show. You can go to patreon.com slash changed my mind, and you can support us for as little as a dollar a month. If you support us for three or five dollars, you get all kinds of cool stuff like early access to episodes and designation as a producer, which will no doubt impress your mom or someone. Um, if you don't want to support us financially and you still want to support us, you can just give me a review at Apple Podcasts. All the usual calls to action apply. Every time a podcast gets a review, an angel gets its wings. Um, I don't know if that's true, but what does happen is that the algorithms take notice and push us closer to the top so more people can see us and find us. Um... This is unrelated to the podcast, but if you like me and can't get enough of me, I've been doing a thing on my Substack uh, where everyone who signs up for my Substack gets um, both of my books for free. So this is a free Substack. If you don't know what Substack is, it's just a newsletter or a blog. Um, you can read it on the site or you can sign up to have it delivered to your email inbox. If you sign up for my Substack, you will get e-copies of both my novel, Ophelia Alive, and my nonfiction debut, Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem, Strange Stories from the Bible to Leave You Amused, Bemused, and Hopefully Informed. Hey Luke, what do you write about on your Substack? You know, pretty much whatever I feel like writing about. It's just a little playground for me to uh, write what's on my mind and share it with the world. Um, I write a lot about you know, pop culture, things I like, uh, horror fiction, musicals. I write some about the publishing industry. Um, I write occasionally about deeper stuff like religion and philosophy, but so far trying to keep it light and fun, trying to keep it accessible for a relatively broad audience, just anybody who enjoys me and my sense of humor. So basically it's for my mom, but you can sign up too if you want. And if you do, you will get free copies of both my books. So if you have been saying, man, I should read that guy's books, but then, man, $20 for a book, that is ridiculous. Well, now's your chance to read them for free. Um, so sign up, tell your friends. Uh, you can go to luketharrington.substack.com and sign up for my Substack. Change My Mind is produced by Tamar Harrington. If you want to be a producer... Go to patreon.com and support the show. Our executive producer is Blake Collier. Our editor is Jonathan Clausen, and we are hosted by the Raven Creek Social Club. I'm Luke T. Harrington. Thank you for listening to Change My Mind, and please don't be afraid to change your mind. <laughs>